we're picking our study back up where we left off in the book of Acts. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you full disclosure here. It doesn't look like we're going to make it through the book of Acts because God's opening up a unique opportunity. I think in September we're going to start looking through the Gospel of John, okay? Uh, but we're, we're kind of jumping in in the middle of the book of Acts here. So let me give you a recap as we're looking at it. But what I want you to see, like I said, through this whole process is that God is still at work and the ministry that Jesus began while he was on earth continued through Peter and the other disciples and even up to this point. So here's my challenge for you, my question for you to take home with out of this today, and we're going to make more sense of this as we go along, is what part are you playing in the work and ministry of Jesus that's ongoing today? Now, I understand that in a crowd this size, I may be talking to some folks who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, so you may not have any idea what I'm talking about here. As we go through, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an understanding, hopefully we're going to talk about where this comes from, what the basis of this is, so that you can understand better what it looks like to follow Jesus and why we would talk about serving him and being a part of his work, because he's a really awesome, incredible God to follow. In fact, he is the one true God, and we're going to exalt him as such, okay? But if you're here today and you know Jesus, my question for you is, what part are you playing in the work that's continuing through the followers of Christ, okay? By the way, I haven't preached in eight or nine, let's see, nine weeks, I think. Um, My voice is going to be a little cracky today, so I've got some water and some cough drops. My voice is a little weak today, and I also may be fired up. So you're just going to have to go with it. We don't know. It's either going to be short or it's going to be long. Um, It may be quiet or it may be loud. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, okay? I'll be as surprised as you are. All right? So, (laughs) excuse me. Let's summarize what we've been seeing God do throughout the book of Acts so far. Now, the author of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke, okay? If you're familiar with your Bible, you may remember that there's another book that this guy named Luke wrote. It's called the Gospel of Luke. Makes it easy, all right? It's easy to be able to find that through. Luke was the first book, and he wrote this gospel, which is an account of Jesus' ministry on earth. In fact, here as he's writing at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, he's giving us the kind of the, the summary of what he wrote in his first book. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says this, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So his first book was about what Jesus did while he was on earth. His second book is about what Jesus did through his disciples who are now called apostles after he went back to heaven. We've seen a lot going on through this, right? We saw in Acts chapter 2 that God sent the Holy Spirit on the church in a unique way to equip and empower the church to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We saw 2,000 people got saved as the apostle Peter stood up and preached the gospel and told everybody about who Jesus was and what he had done for them. And 2,000 people responded to the message that day and got saved. Then we see that the church continues to grow and they're doing really well. Things are going great. Then as we go through, we see there's a few hiccups along the way. The uh, officials are starting to get upset with them, starting to kind of get mad about what's taking place. They're, they're arresting the apostles. They're beating them. But, you know, things are going along well. God's still saving people. And it's all still centered in Jerusalem, though. Then we came up to a point where it got real for a sudden, all of a sudden. And one of the guys, Stephen, he was one of the the, or the, the deacons, basically, of the church, good, godly man, all of a sudden an angry mob stones Stephen to death. That's taken kind of a shift, isn't it? Everything had been going great. The church was growing. People were doing awesome. And all of a sudden now, they're getting killed for their faith. You'll remember, by the way, there was a guy standing there holding everybody's coats while they stoned Stephen. That guy's name was Saul. 
Saul is the guy that we eventually will start calling Paul as he shifts his ministry away from the Jews and more towards the Gentiles. We'll talk about that later. But Saul, as he's sitting there giving approval, we see this guy begins to persecute the church. And it doesn't just stop with Stephen. He starts throwing believers in jail. He starts traveling around trying to do so. And people are starting to get afraid. So they start scattering outside of Jerusalem. But as they scatter, they take the gospel with them as they go. They take the good news about the fact that you and I are sinners and we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God loved you so much that he would send Jesus to die in your place and be raised from the dead so that you could have new life and so that you could be a part of the kingdom where he is ruling and reigning over all of creation and will one day officially set all that rule in place. You can kind of be a part of that now. They took that message of the gospel with them as they went. In the process, by the way, this guy named Saul, this was kind of where we were starting to wrap up our last few lessons before we we broke for the summer. Saul was going to Damascus on his way to throw more Christians in jail. And if you remember, we said that while he was on his way, he met Jesus there on the road. Jesus appeared to him from heaven and said, Hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that instant, Saul's heart was transformed. He became a follower of Christ. He became a Christian. And as then that changed everything for him, we see him immediately going into a season of being persecuted. We see that he's in trouble from his countrymen. We see that they're trying to kill him. He has to be lowered out the window in Damascus so that he doesn't get killed. We see that he gets to Jerusalem, and the Christians don't trust him. They don't want to be around him because they know that he, he killed people, so they're worried that he's trying to infiltrate, kind of, you know, double agent kind of thing. And, and so he starts off really, really rough. Well, that's where we paused at the end of our time together in the spring. We're actually going to keep a pause on Saul's story because that's what Luke does. Luke stops kind of where he was with, with Saul or with Paul, and now he's going to pick back up with Peter. Now, one of the things that we talk about is when you're looking at the Bible, you always have to make sure that you take the passage you're looking at and put it in context of what God's doing and, and why is it where it is and see what's going on. As we see Luke recording a couple of stories today about what happened through Peter, what I think you're going to see as you look through this this morning is something very interesting. Peter is estab- or, excuse me, Luke is establishing that what God's doing through Peter is exactly the same thing he did through Jesus. And we're going to see it down almost to the letter as we go through this. Why is he doing that? Well, because if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know in Acts chapter 10, God's about to turn everything that Jewish Christians thought was real upside down. All of a sudden, the gospel is getting ready to people who to, the gospel is getting ready to go to people who are not ethnically Jewish. And they're going to get saved just like the Jews did. And for Peter and the other apostles, that was unfathomable that God would do that. So what he's doing is right before all that takes place, and we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, what he's doing is he's establishing at the very beginning, look, this is the ministry of Jesus continued. Now, that'll make more sense when we look through the passage, okay? So if you've got a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 9, picking up in verse 31. Verse 31 is a summary statement that sort of stands alone from everything else. So here it is. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So this is just kind of a summary statement from Luke. Things are going really well. There's kind of a, a passage of time. We don't really know how long, but things are going along pretty good. The church is continuing to grow. We know that Peter had left and was traveling through various areas. Remember, he went up to Samaria after Philip was doing his work there. And so it says, as Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. So immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. 
In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, okay? That's a terrible name, by the way. Please don't name your kids Dorcas unless you want them to be made fun of for their entire life, okay? Um, Dorcas is the Greek name where uh, Tabitha is her Aramaic name. Remember that in those days, uh, the Jews living in Israel there would have spoken Aramaic, and that's going to be important here in just a minute. Tabitha is her Aramaic name. Uh, Dorcas is her Greek name because they would have spoken both, okay? So in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him uh, who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. He opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Now, we're going to get to all of why this is important in a minute. First thing that I want you to see, though, is we do want to address the fact that that Luke's main goal in this is showing that Jesus continued his work through Peter, okay? So the first thing I want you to do is that Jesus is continuing his ministry through Peter, okay? As you're looking at this, the, the way that God works through Peter is supposed to remind us of the way that Jesus performed miracles. So that's something we want to draw a picture of. One of the things I want you to do, by the way, anytime you're reading the Bible, we want to be very careful that we don't read our imagination into things. But at the same time, the Bible sometimes gives very, very short descriptions of very powerful moments. So don't let the brevity of these two things cause you to lose the beauty of what's taking place. Okay, he goes first to, he's traveling around, like we said, he'd, he'd been in Samaria and, and some time had passed, we don't know. He's been kind of going around and checking on the work that God's doing around. Now remember, Peter was the one that was in charge of the apostles at this point. He, as he's going around, he comes to this town called Lydda. It's or, Lydda, I don't know. Um, remember, the key to saying biblical names correctly is to say them quickly and confidently and nobody knows the difference, okay? So we're going to go with Lydda today. So he comes to this place called Lydda as he's traveling around. It's about 11 miles southeast of the Mediterranean Sea, just a, a stone's throw away from Joppa, which is where he's going to end up before the story's over. And he's there ministering among the saints, and he encounters this guy named Aeneas. Now, it sounds like he goes to Aeneas's house. We have no idea whether Aeneas was a believer or not. The text doesn't tell us if he was one of the saints or if he was the friend of somebody who said, hey, I've got this friend who's been bedridden for eight years. Now, it's real easy to, re- to read through that quickly. I've been the pastor here for 10 years, okay? Think back about life eight years ago, okay? Eight years ago, who was president? Is that Obama president, right? Is that his first term eight years ago? Your second term? Okay. Think about the cost of gas eight years ago. Think about where you were eight years ago. Think about what life looked like. Think about how small your kids were. Caleb wasn't even born eight years ago. Emma was two. Eight years of being bedridden is a really long time. By the way, remember that they didn't have Tempur-Pedic hospital beds. This wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot they could give you for pain and discomfort. This was eight long, miserable years for this man. 
And it seems like from the way the text reads, he, he wasn't born paralyzed. It seems like there was an accident or an illness or something that caused him to become paralyzed. And so he knew what it was like to walk. He knew what it was like to be mobile. He knew what it was like to provide for himself and for his family. He knew what those things were like. And now here's Aeneas stuck in bed for eight long years. Peter walks in. He looks at him, and I love what he says. Notice how Peter says it in verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter was not so arrogant to think that he himself was the one doing the healing. He knew that in and of himself he had nothing. I mean, this is Peter for crying out loud, right? This is Peter, the guy who's infamous for sticking his foot in his mouth. Peter, the one that at one point Jesus had to rebuke and say, get behind me, Satan, because Peter told Jesus, no, you're not going to do that. Remember, when we talked about that passage before, I've reminded you, don't tell God what not to do, okay? He's God, you're not, so don't try that. It doesn't go well. But that's what Peter did, right? Peter's the same guy who, when Jesus was being tried, in the very most important moment in human history, Peter denies him three times and says, nah, man, I'm... I'm out. I don't know that guy. Instead of standing with his Lord, he was getting ready to go to the cross to die for him. And yet after he's restored, Peter starts doing these incredible things. This isn't the first time we've seen God use Peter to heal somebody. Yet at this moment, he's very clear, it's not me that's doing this. It's Jesus is the one who's healing you. I just get to be the guy who gets to tell you about it. Isn't that awesome to think about, by the way? He just got to be the messenger and say, hey, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. Now, I would say, making my bed would not be the first thing that I would want to do if I'd been paralyzed for eight years and finally got to stand up. But it was a sign that he was instantly, fully restored. Now, why does Luke include this one? You know that Peter had been teaching other places. You know that Peter had been healing other places. Why this one? Because he's reminding us of something he wrote in his first book, in Luke chapter 5, where it talks about Jesus sitting there teaching, and there was a paralyzed man on a bed. Now, he couldn't get through the door, so his friends loved him so much that they dug a hole in the roof, and they made a big scene and a fuss about it, and lowered their friend down in front of Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. That's found in Luke chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. When, when they lower him down, Jesus' first statement to this man is, your sins are forgiven. And that makes all the religious, matter, uh, religious leaders around there absolutely furious with Jesus. So here's Jesus' response. By the way, they didn't say it out loud, but Luke chapter 5, verse 22. But perceiving their thoughts. <laughs> it's rough when God's in the room with you, by the way. He knows what you're thinking, so you may as well just say it out loud. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. You see what Luke's doing? Yeah, Peter's messed up a bunch. But the ministry that Jesus began on earth is continuing. As he looks at this paralyzed man, just like he'd seen Jesus do, he says, get up, get your bed made. And he does. Isn't that awesome to think about? That the work that God was doing, he continued through Peter. By the way, you know, we know later on, Peter still didn't get it fully. 
There's a time later on in, in the church history when Paul has to call Peter out for being a hypocrite. But in this moment, he's using Peter just like Jesus ministered on earth. Now it gets even better in the next one. So jump down here with me. Oh, by the way, as you're thinking about this, Jesus' work on earth didn't stop when he ascended back into heaven because it was just getting started. His command that he gave there in Acts chapter 1 is this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, this is just getting started. Now it's your job through the power that the Holy Spirit gives you to go out into all of the ends of the earth, taking the gospel and doing what I've told you to do. So Peter was. Now, check this out. What happens? Verse 35. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. When they saw what God had done through Peter in Aeneas, what did they do? They turned to the Lord. Why? Because Peter was being his witness. And now Aeneas was being his witness. There in Lydda. And people in that region got saved. They got right with God. Because Jesus was continuing his ministry through Peter. Now, like I said, it gets better in this next one. So now we move to a lady named Tabitha. I'm going to call her Tabitha because, like I said, Dorcas sounds like a terrible name in English. Now, this was a wonderful, incredible, godly woman. We'll talk more about her in a minute. Her death left a huge hole in the church in that day. So when when she died, the people said, hey, Peter's like 11 miles away. I bet we can go get him and see if, if God would do something here. They washed her body, they, they prepared it for burial, but they did something unusual. They put it up in the, the upper room instead of taking it out and burying it. They just seemed to have a sense that God was going to do something. So then Peter comes. How's that go? Well, look again at verse 40 and 41. Peter sent them all out of the room. Now that's an important thing that we'll come back to later. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her to stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. Pause. Can you imagine this? I mean, seriously, think about it. Somebody you love, somebody who has ministered to people, somebody who's cared for people, somebody who's made a huge impact in the lives around her, and she's dead. People don't come back from that, guys. When people die, they die. But yet in this moment, for whatever reason in God's plan, he chose to reverse death in Tabitha's life. Can you imagine being Peter? What's it feel like to have the Spirit of God work through you in such a way to raise the dead? can't fathom that. I've had moments where I've been talking and, I, and it just seems like God takes over and I'm able to come up with arguments that I could never come up with. I'm able to say things in a way that I never would have. I've seen God soften hearts. I mean, you can just watch it on people's demeanor. But to be able to say to a dead woman, Tabitha, get up. And for her to do it, what a moment that would be. Can you imagine the joy in her friends and her family and in the church? I don't think there was a golf clap when they walked out of the room, right? 
I think they were shouting and they were celebrating. Remember, they were expressive mourners. They actually would hire professional mourners. They were people who would come and they would sit by the body and they would cry. And it sounds really weird because you're like, why would you fake that? Well, it's because it gave you the freedom as the relative to be able to start crying so you weren't crying by yourself. It's a really weird system to us because it's not how we do things and we process things so much more privately. But they would have people who would professionally cry by the body so that you would have the freedom to feel whatever emotions you needed to feel. And you didn't have to do so in shame and alone. But can you imagine if in that moment when that stopped and the tears switched from being anguish and loss to overwhelming joy as Jesus was performing his work through Peter? Now, here's where this is really cool, guys. I geek out about stuff like this. Keep in mind that the Bible was written through the hands of about 40 different men. It was written over the course of thousands of years. And in the process of all of this, there is one author behind it all. So here's what this one author was doing. Can you remember a time when Jesus raised somebody from the dead? He did it about three times that we know of, aside from his own resurrection. There was a little boy on the way to a funeral. There was Lazarus. There was one other. It was the daughter of a man named Jairus. Remember this? Jairus was a synagogue official who came and begged for Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus gets interrupted on the way there and does another incredible ministry moment. And and then as he starts back, they say, don't bother the teacher anymore because she's dead. Luke records this in Luke chapter 8. Again, as you're seeing this, Jesus goes to the house. They say, what are you talking about? She's dead. He says, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Because he's the God who's over life and death himself. Now, Luke records it in in chapter 8 of of Luke, but Mark says it in Mark chapter 5. And I want to read Mark's account to you so you can see something absolutely astoundingly beautiful about the sovereignty of our God in weaving together history, okay? You're going to have to track with me, okay? Luke chapter 5. Remember, Jesus had just said that Jairus' daughter is not dead. She's asleep, and they're all like, look, we know what dead is, and she's dead. So it says there in Mark chapter 5, they laughed at Jesus, but he put them all outside. Hey, what did Peter do when he showed up at Tabitha's house? He sent them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, those who were with him. So it's just mom, dad, and his disciples. And here's the place where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, what language did we say? By the way, that's Aramaic that you're seeing there. Talitha kum. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic to this little girl and told her, little girl, Get up. What language did Peter speak? Aramaic. So what would he have said to Dorcas, whose Aramaic name was Tabitha? Tabitha, kumi. As he spoke Aramaic to this woman and raised her from the dead, he's saying almost to the letter the exact same thing that Jesus did. Doesn't that blow your mind? Think about this. How many people died in this region during this time? 
Who's the one that God chooses to raise? The one who would give the clearest picture of the continuity of Jesus' ministry from his time on earth to his time through Peter. This, you can't get any clearer than what he's doing right here. He's got it down to the letter where the only difference is an L versus a B. Doesn't that blow your mind that our God could work so sovereignly that his plan could pull things together that beautifully? By the way, as an aside, it's not like God's lost control since then. It's not like he could orchestrate things down to the letter back then and now he's just out of control and the, you know, he had no idea that the Delta variant would be a thing or that critical race theory would be a thing or that there would be questions about gender and sexuality or that you would have this issue or that whatever's going on in your heart and your life right now. That, none of that has caught him off guard. This God is able to raise the dead and able to do so in such a way that he's got it narrowed down even to the letter when he does it. He's not stopped being that same God. Well, Sean, why is he letting the Delta variant take so many lives? Why is he not stopping this? Why is he not, I don't know, I'm not him. That's above my pay grade, okay? But in the middle of all of this, I have to choose to step back and say, the God who can raise the dead, the God who can heal the paralyzed, the God who can do all of these things is still in charge. And I'm going to trust him even though I can't fully figure out what's going on. Truth be told, I don't want to know. Right? I mean, I had more time this summer to sit back and read the news than I typically do. I don't usually follow a lot of news but we had some more downtime this summer than I typically do. It's overwhelming. The phrase that that people are using is doom scrolling, right? Where you just sit down and you're just going through, you know, Reddit or you're going through CNN or you're going through whatever your, your drug of choice on the internet and you're just constantly scrolling through terrible news after terrible news after terrible news after terrible news and I found myself doing that. And as I did, you start sitting there going, God, are you, what are you doing? Why aren't you stopping this? Why aren't you working on behalf of your people like you should? Why aren't you expressing your kingdom like you should? Why are you doing these things? And you know what? If I'm not real careful, I'm going to be the one telling God, like Peter did, you can't do that. So I need to step back and say, God, you can raise the dead. God, you're sovereign over the affairs of the earth. And God, you're still working through guys like Peter. You're still working through flawed men. You're doing what only you could. Now, again, Luke is establishing what he's getting ready to to just blow the lid off of in chapter 10. It's hard for us to really grasp how incredibly revolutionary chapter 10 is when it happens. Because for us, we've always known that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we've always understood that that means literally the whole world. Every nation, every race, every tribe, every tongue. Those of us who've grown up in church and are familiar with those truths know that that's for everybody. At this point, they just thought that was talking about the Jews and everybody else could sort of shoehorn into it a little bit. So he's getting ready to blow the thing wide open in chapter 10 by showing that the gospel truly meant that everyone could be fully saved just the same way through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So Luke is establishing that Jesus' ministry that looks just like when he healed the guy that was lowered through the roof, looks just like when he, hired, when he raised Jairus' daughter down to the letter, that his work has continued. Now, 
I could probably perceive the objection. Somebody's sitting there saying, yeah, but Sean, (laughs) I'm not Peter. We know that Peter did some dumb things, but I mean, he preached and thousands got saved. He raised the dead. He, he healed lepers. He healed people who were broken. And, and he led the church in its early days to have an incredible foundation in reaching the world. He was crucified upside down, tradition tells us. It's not in Scripture, but tradition tells us he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way his Savior did. <laughs> I'm not Peter. Yeah, but see, here's what I want you to see, what else is going on. This is a secondary issue of what's going on in the text, but I want you to see it. Not only did Jesus continue his ministry through Peter, he continues his ministry through normal disciples. He continued his ministry through normal believers. Now, let's be real clear here. I heard someone once wisely say, normal is just a setting on a dryer, okay? There's not a one of us in this church who is normal. So if you're looking for a church of normal people, you're not going to find it, okay? In many ways, as the pastor of this church, I feel like I am a misfit toy, <laughs> all right? Remember the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Island of Misfit Toys? When I look around at churches and all, I realize, man, we are all a bunch of misfit toys, but by the grace of God, we are saved and we're trying to help others to know him. So I get that normal is maybe a stretch. But he doesn't just work through super apostles like Peter. What do we see here? Well, he works through a man named Aeneas. I looked up several Bible dictionaries and commentaries. We know absolutely nothing about this man outside of this passage. He is never mentioned again in Scripture. There's no tradition about him in church history. We just know that there was a guy named Aeneas. And when he started telling people what God had done in his life, they got saved. Right? Isn't that what it says in verse 35? So all who lived in Sharon, and Lydda and Sharon saw him and turn to the Lord. That hymn wasn't Peter. That hymn was Aeneas. They saw this regular guy whose life had been radically transformed by Jesus Christ, and he's told other people about it, and it changed the villages where he lived. Not only that, I told you we'd talk more about Dorcas or Tabitha. You go down to read her story, verse 36. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. Man, if I died and that's what people said about me, I would feel like my life was worthwhile. That that I was always loving people, that I was always doing things that honored Christ. I was always ministering to folks. What was it specifically she was doing? Well, go down to verse 39. When they came to Peter, they got him and said, Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs and All the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, why were they weeping? Well, keep in mind, in those days, there was no Medicaid. There was no Medicare. There was no Social Security. You didn't have a pension. So if your husband died, unless you had a lot of wealth or you had kids who could take care of you, you were going to be destitute. Being a widow in the first century was a terrible way to live. And we don't know a whole lot about Dorcas, but what we do know is she had the ability to sew. And she was kind enough and gracious enough to make clothes for these women. In fact, the way that it's worded in the text, it sounds like that's probably the robes they were wearing when they met Peter. They were showing him, she made this for me. 
Now, those widows had no way to pay her back. They were completely destitute. There's nothing that they could have given her other than for her just to show the love of Christ to them like Christ had loved her. And that's what she did. Getting ready to ask a question, and I don't want it to be too harsh. Can I, can I have permission to speak freely? Okay. I know I've been gone for a couple months. If you died, would the church notice? Your family would notice, and we would notice. We would care. We love you guys. We're grateful you're here. But... Would there be people who showed up to the visitation saying, oh, man, if you knew this one time when he showed up, if you knew how, how she had ministered to me when I was going through this and she'd heard about that, if you knew how, when he'd come over and, and he, he did this and he took me out for lunch or took me out for God. Tabitha wasn't a church leader from what we can tell. She was just a lady in the church using her gifts, her talents, her resources, her ability to help other people. She made a difference because she was continuing the work of Jesus through the gifts, the talents, the resources that he'd given her. Are you? There's one more in here that, that's real quick right there at the end. Dorcas did her ministry to the widows, but then it says there in verse 43, Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. What's a leather tanner? What's a tanner? Well, not the host of Wake Up San Francisco. Okay, I was trying to see how many 80s kids we had in here. For those of you who remember Full House, Danny Tanner, right? Okay, there were a handful of you who got it. This is not his great, 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 great grandfather. Tanners were people who took animal hide and made it into leather you could use for clothes, for stools, for whatever you needed leather for. Any of you familiar with the tanning process? You know what? The only thing I know about tanning is it's disgusting. And it smells terrible. I knew that before I researched, but when I did some research, they said actually the tanner in town would usually live on the outskirts of town because the vats of stuff smelled so bad. Okay? Now, if I'm a traveling preacher, Jimmy, if you're, if you're going to stay at a host home, while you're preaching revival meetings at somebody's house home, you, you wouldn't necessarily look for the smelliest house, would you? If, if we were hosting Jimmy here and, and we were going to have him come in to do a revival meeting and he didn't actually live here, you usually try to find that one guy who's got that real nice house and, you know, and, and the, the wife that cooks a real good breakfast every morning, you know, and you really want to put him up in the nice place. But you know what? This guy, Simon the Tanner, said, hey, I've I got a spare room. You can come stay at my place. And he hosted the Apostle Peter. Do you know what God did while he was at the house of this bad-smelling guy? He gave Peter a vision that would change the history of the church. We'll see this as we get into the next couple of weeks. While he's there at Simon the Tanner's house, God appears to him and shows him this vision uh, that now everything has been declared clean that had been unclean. That happened at a house that smelled like rotting flesh. Sean, I'm just a, 
Yeah, I, I, but my house isn't all that big. I, I couldn't host a small group or anything. I, Shonda, I, I just, I'm a... The ministry in this passage happened through normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill, nothing extraordinary believers. You know what it means when you say, God could never do this through me? Who are you talking bad about there? It's not you. You're saying, God is not able to work through me. Remember when I said, don't tell God what he can and can't do? So don't tell God what he can and can't do, right? He continues his ministry through normal believers. So what's going on with you? What's different about the world because you're in it? How are you letting Jesus use you? Where does that leave you? Now, God may never call you or me to be the next Peter raising the dead and healing lame legs. And God may never allow us to do that. But maybe you're supposed to make clothes for widows. Maybe you're supposed to host traveling missionaries in your home, give them a safe place to go. Hey, guys, in case you haven't figured out, ministry is really, really hard in your own culture. It's really, 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 really hard if God calls you to go somewhere like Japan. So maybe what God would have you do is have somebody over just to say, hey, this is a safe place for you to unwind and be human. And then when they sit there and they tell you that things are hard and they're struggling with even the goodness of God sometimes, because I've had those conversations with pastors, and I've been the one having that conversation on that side. Guys, I, I wish I could help you to understand ministry is really hard. It really is. Now, it's the greatest calling in the world if it's what God's called you to. But maybe God would call you to be Simon the Tanner and open your home and say, hey, just come. And when, when the pastor, the missionary, the whoever it is, when they say things are really hard, you don't sit there and pick up the phone and say, oh, you'll never believe what so-and-so said. I was hosting that missionary we had in for that revival meeting, and he was telling me that he and his wife were not getting along. <gasps> the, you serious? Maybe God's calling you to be a safe space for those who are in ministry. And I'm not talking like, you know, coloring because it's too stressful. out. I'm, I'm talking place for them to come and unwind, a place for them to find healing and hope. Maybe God's calling you to minister to people who could never give you anything back, like Dorcas. Maybe God's calling you to raise the dead. I don't know. God could do that if he wants to. But he's going to continue his work through normal, everyday believers. That's why we had Doug read the passage he did at the beginning of the service. I heard Mark Dever, who's the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church up in Washington, D.C., issue this challenge to his people, and this is something I want to leave you with. If you're here this morning and, and you're not sure how to get involved here, there are plenty of places, I promise you. We've reopened the nursery since I was gone. There are other areas where we have need. I can, I can help you find a place. Uh, Randy Marshall, Doug Krause, uh, Gordon Howard, Mike Montgomery, and Tim Repass. Where, uh, Tim's up. All right. Uh, there, there you are. You're usually right here. You've moved. Oh, man. Those gentlemen are our deacons, and they're aware of what God's doing and would love to help you find a place to serve. But until that point, until you find something official to do, you don't have to wait for anything official. There's nothing that says any of this was the official ministry of the church. It was just people doing what God told them to do. So start with this. Start by going through that passage that, that Doug read at the beginning of the service. Ephesians chapter 3, start in verse 16 through 19. Or, yeah, 16 through 19. Start praying this. Break it into little sections maybe and pray one section a day for the church. 
that God would, give, would do this, all right? So I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray that for this church. Now, that in and of itself is a ministry. Around here, we believe that God does actually respond to prayer. Kind of crazy to think about it, isn't it? This is a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and I want you to start praying this for our church. Praying that that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That we would be strengthened with power through His Spirit that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted, firmly established in love, that we'd be able to comprehend the depth of God's love, that we would know that His love surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Would you pray that for our church? And then as you're praying that for our church, there may be ways that God starts calling you to be involved in somebody else's life to help them to see and to know and to understand that love that surpasses knowledge. I wish we had time to break that apart, but uh, Mark Dever said that when he preached through this passage, he was saying that uh, it took D. Martin Lloyd-Jones somewhere between 12 and 17 messages just to get through that passage. We're not going to do that. But start praying through it. Why? Because of the last part of that passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says this, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now listen, guys. I want to see God do the unthinkable. He can he, he can heal somebody who's been paralyzed for eight years and have them strong enough to immediately get up and be able to make their own bed. They didn't have to go to six weeks of physical therapy. They were healed. He took a woman who was dead and raised her from the dead. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we could ask or think. So be praying for God to do the unimaginable. Be praying that we would have to install a filter so that we, because the baptistry just stays full all the time because people are coming to know Jesus so often that we just keep baptizing. Be praying that God would allow us to see where the needs are in the community around us to be able to bring hope and to be able to bring joy, not just to make life better here, but to be able to point people to the eternal hope that we have in the gospel. Be praying that God would give us a heart for each other so that we notice when people are missing, so that we care about each other, so that we're holding people to the cross and saying, guys, I see this in your life and I see what God says in his word and I want better for you than what I'm seeing in your life right now because God loves you so very much. Why? Because that's the ministry that Jesus began and he continued it through Peter and he continues it through normal believers today. So what do you need to do? Keep in mind, by the way, the reason all of this is possible, the reason all of this is what we do, is because the God who raised the dead died in our place. 
when he said, Jesus Christ heals you, Jesus is the one who took my sin, everything I've ever done wrong, all of the dumb words, all of the wrong heart attitudes, all of the selfishness, all of the pride, all of the things that are bound up in my heart, and he took them on the cross, and he died to pay the penalty for my sin. And he was raised to prove that he had overcome it. And now he offers that life to any of us. Any who will call in the name of the Lord can be saved. So if today you've never come to that point of placing your life in Jesus' hands, do it right now. All you got to do is say, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've messed up. I know I've not been who you've called me to be. I I don't know what all this means, but I've heard this pastor say that that you can save me. So I'm going to trust you. I want you to forgive me. I need your life. And you know what's cool? It says, whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this isn't some magical incantation where if you just say these words, then all of a sudden, poof, you're saved. But if that's expressing what God's doing in your heart, and he's regenerating you, he's transforming you, he's shaping you, and saving you. So here's what I want us to do. I want everybody in here to just go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute. I'm going to invite Morgan just to come up and play for a moment. Just because we're Americans and we hate silence and it's really awkward. I'm going to have her just play some background music so that that way you can kind of have some time to do business with God. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then I'm going to invite you to do that right now. If you need help doing that or if you've got questions about it, you can come down and talk to me. I'd love to talk with you. And if we can't, don't have time right here at the end of the service to talk through all of it, We'll talk through it later. We'll, we'll come back. We'll figure out some time. We will make a priority to make sure that you don't leave this place without knowing who Jesus is and knowing what a relationship looks like with him. So I'm going to be down front. I'm going to invite you. If you need to talk to me about it, you can come down here. If, however, you know Jesus, my question is, what is he doing through you? Guys, God's kingdom is going to go on whether you serve him or not. He doesn't need you. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to allow us to serve him, to have a part in what he's doing, whether that's in raising the dead or sowing a hymn. What is it that God's calling you to do? Maybe you don't know. Would you commit to making the prayer there in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and following? Would you... Allow that prayer to become the prayer of your heart for your church. By the way, we say your church is just the easiest way for us to describe it. It's not our church. It's not my church. This is Jesus' church. How does he want you to use the gifts, the talents, the resources, the house, the car, the stuff, the abilities, in formal and informal ways for his ministry to continue? I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to let you just do business with God there for a minute. After I finish praying, you just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a minute. And if you need to talk with me, I'd love to talk with you. And if not, you just do business with God where you're at. Come up with one thing you need to do different this week. And then I'll close this out after a minute within another time of prayer. Father, we thank you that you're the God who can raise the dead. We thank you that you're the God who can heal lame legs. 
And we thank you that you're the God who can work through normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill people. You know there's nothing special in me. There's nothing about me that's worthy of being able to preach or be a pastor. It's just you and your calling. Would you help me to serve in the way that you want me to? Would you help me to lead, to, to pray, to preach, to counsel and encourage? But God, not just me. Paul said that you would do more than we could ask or think and that you would do that in the church. So God, every heart that's listening this morning, whether they're watching online or here in person with us, God, would you use us to continue Jesus' ministry here on earth so that people could come to know how awesome you are, be encouraged, be challenged, walk more closely with you. God, use us as you see fit. Settle what's going on in our hearts right now. Father, it's easy for us to make commitments sitting in a quiet sanctuary. But we know that as soon as we walk out these doors, it's going to get loud again. All of the things that have to get done this week, even our fun time this afternoon at the picnic, all of this is going to come flooding in in an instant. So in these last few moments of stillness and quietness in your presence, would you seal and settle these commitments that have been made to you today? Where we've said we're going to start praying this prayer, or we're going to take the next step in finding a place to serve, or we're going to reach out to our neighbor or love that person that we're just having such a hard time loving right now because of your ministry continuing through us. Would you seal and settle those commitments so that when we come back next week, we're back together on Sunday morning all together again, we would be able to to look back over a week of seeing you at work, of seeing gospel conversations where we were able to point servers and cashiers and roommates to you, of students who've been able to go to classes this week. As our public schools are starting back and some of our other schools are starting back, as they go to the classrooms and be able to represent you with their friends, with their teachers even. We pray that you would do great things through our, those in our, our church who are part of the school system in administration and in teaching. We pray for the students who are returning, that as they're getting settled on campus, whether they're coming for the first time or coming back, we pray that you would give peace and that you'd give grace and that you would connect them to churches so that they can know you and they can walk with you and they can grow in you. We pray you would do all these things so that when we get back next Sunday, we can rejoice and celebrate in you and what you've accomplished, not pat ourselves on the back for a job well done because we can't do any of this. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory for all that you're going to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.